Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Talking Pharmacy podcast. My name is Richard Thomas, editor of Pharmacy Magazine, and joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Neil Trainis, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist, and Arthur Walsh, editor of our daily news service, Pharmacy Network News. So lots to talk about. It's the first time we've had a full house for a while. So let's start straight away with Good Week, Bad Week. So, Rob, good to have you back on the pod. Um, what do you have for us? Thanks very much, Richard. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, COVID vaccinations and and the continued lack of a clear and consistent message from uh, the government. So, I'm going to start with a, a conversation that a friend of mine overheard in um, while they were out and about in town. Uh, I don't know which town, um, but they heard overheard a couple of elderly ladies talking and they were talking about flu vaccinations to start with and the one of the two elderly ladies had had her flu jab and the other one and she said to the other and the other one said that they got theirs booked for the following week and then one of them said to the other what are you doing about your covid booster and the second uh old lady said oh well i've had two i'm not sure i'm not sure that's enough, isn't it? And I, I think that's, you know, part of the challenge. And we've got lots of news floating about this week um, that I think set against the background of the news, that sort of conversation out there amongst the general public should be slightly worrying. So particularly in the news this week, and um, we've featured it is this news that one in four fully vaccinated people have exposure to the delta variant at home are likely to become infected themselves and that's uh, a recent paper in the lancet infectious diseases um so that's that's interesting so, so you know the the challenge there is high circulating vaccine um virus is the breeding ground for more variants and we've also had news this week um, of the one of the uh, medical professors and immunologists at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., predicting a fully resistant COVID variant by the spring, um, which I think should be a cause to, to worry us all. So I'm not sure we've moved on particularly. You know, high circulating viral loads mean uh, right uh, opportunity for variants to breed to breed themselves you know breed and variants potentially could be less damaging we've got um professor paul elliott this week reported he's the guy at uh, running the react program at imperial saying that there is a more infectious delta variant now um one in 10 positive cases in the uk although it is less likely to produce um, symptoms, so that's a good thing. But then we could have the converse, which is a, a much more um, dangerous uh, variant, which uh, is vaccine resistant, and then we might all be in problems. So if we really want to get rid of this, you know, we need people to get vaccinated. We need people to stay vaccinated. And I'm not entirely sure. I know the government's been preoccupied with other things over the last uh, two weeks or so. But there's still waffly stuff about um, about the process and the fact we've all moved on, I don't think is helping um, and won't help the country in the long term. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, COVID 
mixed messages and, and public confusion out there, um, which I agree with, actually. And that's, that is very worrying, what you were saying there about more infectious variants and even a, a fully resistant variant. Blimey, um, we're, we're not out of the woods yet. I'll, um, I've got a bit about that as well in, in my bit, actually, Rob. So um, some kind of real-life examples, if you like, of this public confusion. Um, and I'll come to that. But at first, I'm going to go for good week. Um, and it's to do with uh, COVID vaccinations, but I'm going to go good week for Knight's Pharmacy and it's COVID, COVID vaccine bus. Now, you might have read about this story in the press. So a team of pharmacists from Knight's has, uh, has taken to the road in County Durham on a bus hired by the CCG to administer COVID, COVID boosters uh, in a mobile clinic. And they've jabbed over a thousand people, I think, so far. Uh, in areas where uptake is low or, or where people have struggled to get to a clinic. And, you know, to me, it was just another superb example of the innovation and, and out-of-the-box thinking that we've seen from the sector with, with COVID vaccinations. Um, and let's be honest, it's it's independents and small groups that are leading the way here. Um, of the top 100 pharmacies that are providing the COVID vaccination service, in terms of number of jobs, 94 are independents, 94 out of 100. Um, now, Arthur and I saw uh, another superb pharmacy COVID vaccination clinic in action uh, earlier on in the week where we dropped by Jackie and Martin Lewis's pharmacy in, in Exmouth. And, and Jackie uh, and Martin, very familiar to uh, to our listeners, um, brilliant pharmacy down there. So they've got a different model, obviously, but it, very successful, extremely busy when we were there. They've administered thousands of jobs since, the, um, since they started. Really good example of how services like like this work so well in in a community pharmacy setting, and you could see in in the future this service being expanded um, pretty easily with with flu jobs and COVID boosters at the same time. Um, let me just explain briefly about the setup. Um, Jackie's pharmacy is not massive by any means, but it it is double fronted, and the clinic takes up, I suppose, about half of the space. Um, they've got three consultation rooms and you need that space and you need those consultation rooms. And it was extremely well run and a true collaborative effort across the local healthcare community. The The local practice nurse was running the clinic when we were there um, on her day off, actually, from, from the GP practice. Uh, and Jackie told us that over 60 people are involved in some way or another, clinicians, volunteers, admin staff, etc. I mean, I think it's important to say... And I really got a clear impression about this when, when we were there. This kind of thing isn't for everyone. Um, I think sometimes we all get a bit carried away about what pharmacy can realistically offer here with vaccinations because you need the space and you, you definitely can't underestimate the, the organisation and effort that's involved to run a clinic. It's very intensive logistically in terms of people and infrastructure and IT and, and kit. And it's challenging work as well um and patients can be fractious and when we were there on uh, on tuesday it was the uh, the national booking system had developed a glitch which meant that people had been sent a reminder but couldn't actually book a slot so all that had to be dealt with by jackie and the team and and this is this comes back to rob's point um you know every time there's a government announcement or or new advice uh for instance on extending the booster jobs to 40 to 49 year olds, which happened on Monday. Well, you know, that generates a deluge of, of phone calls and questions from patients. And, and the, the situation is really confusing on the ground. And all of that has to be, has to be handled at the sharp end. So 
it's challenging work, but my goodness, when it when it works, it really works, and it's it's brilliant to see. Um, and it was it was just fantastic. Community pharmacy is such a natural setting for this kind of service, and it was great to spend uh, time with Jackie Martin and their the wonderful team uh, in Exmouth. So, um, good week for them. A good week for Knight's Pharmacy and its magical vaccination tour, and for all those pharmacies involved in the COVID booster program, doing such tremendous work. And as a small plug, uh, you'll be able to hear more about uh, Arthur and my West Country road trip in uh, a special edition of the podcast in a couple of weeks' time. So that's me. Um, Arthur, let's we go to you next. Uh, yeah, so first off, I'll echo what you said about how great it was to meet uh, Jackie and Martin in their pharmacy and see sort of age, the sheer efficiency of the service and um, the number of, of patients who, who managed to get vaccinated in um, during the, the time while we were there and be the sort of, you know, de- dedication and the real sort of um, community feel that sort of exuded from, from Jackie. Um, and I thought I thought also um, it was great to see, like you said, sort of the the practice nurse in there. I think I wonder if something like the COVID vaccination drive would end up doing a lot more. Obviously, not every pharmacy is doing it, but you know, could end up doing a lot more to sort of uh, boost GP pharmacy relationships than something like because it's such a clear common goal and um you know and such a need to work together then something like i mean i know i always buy on about the the gp cpcs something like that where it can feel like a, oh you know a, extra admin do i have to do this um whereas with the vaccination drive it's such a such a clear and you know nationally important common goal uh but i'm going to segue from that to a little bit of a bad week um the company chemist association has come out um and said that there's a workforce crisis that threatens uh, communities with disruption to, to medicine supply because pharmacies, um, if, this, if this goes on, if the, if the lack of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians go, goes on, uh, more pharmacies will have to close. Both um, obviously temporary pharmacy closures are uh, really in the news, in, in, in local news a lot these days. They seem to be very much on the rise, but also the pharmacies closing uh, permanently, the, the CCA warned. Um, there are numerous factors, uh, they say, behind this. Um, Brexit has, has made it um, difficult to, to, to re- recruit pharmacists from certain countries. And COVID has led to an increase of uh, temporary absences. But really, the big factor, they say, is the um, recruitment from pharmacists, uh, recruitment of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians into general practice and primary care na- networks which uh, in their words say has has really begun to bite um half of a, a, out of a planned six thousand pharmacists who the nhs wants to recruit to primary care half of that has already been recruited so that's three thousand and they say um uh, that there's you know there's no sort of plans to balance this out by you know trying to boost the number of undergraduates trading as pharmacists it appears to be sort of um uh, just ver- very much a, a zero something that, that that the nhs ha- has in mind and um and yet malcolm harrison warned that this is um it could be you know devastating for for, for the sector and, and for local communities and that the government uh, has to 
to reconsider its um its plans and sit down with sort of sector leaders to to find an approach that that is less that sort of is less undermining to community pharmacies. Uh, Leila Hambeck from AIM, she she sort of echoed these sentiments, saying that there's primary care recruitment uh, sort of worsens what's already an un, uneven playing field as pharmacies are sort of into year five of a seven year funding cut, so they, they can't sort of compete with, uh, in some cases with um, the offer uh, from general practice. Um, of course, for balance, you know there are there are people who claim that there's not really a, a workforce shortage in, in in community pharmacy they say that um uh it's uh conditions and it's paying conditions in some pharmacies that make it difficult for some pharmacies to to recruit um and i'm sure that's the case in some instances but when thing when it's happening on this scale you sort of do have to look at the sheer migration, the sheer numbers of people moving to primary care. I did sort of put that to, to Malcolm Harrison from CCA for Balance, and he acknowledged that um, uh, that flat funding and funding cuts have made it hard to to offer you know higher salaries to pharmacists and and, and other staff. But um, but yeah, he, he sort of was was adamant that um, that that. More just more pharmacies are more, more pharmacists are, are going are going to PCNs and that's going to to undercut the the workforce available to community pharmacies. Yeah, thanks, thank you, Arthur. Um, yeah, that was a very downbeat uh, report from the CCA, wasn't it? Um, more pharmacy closures unavoidable because of pharmacy shortages, and you know the workforce issue um, crops up again. Uh, Rob, what did uh, what did you make of the CCA report? Well, I'm not sure I've got something to say about what I make of it, but did, do they have any solutions or is it just a kind of a, can somebody please fix this? Because one of the challenges, I guess, is that the neither the government nor the NHS particularly, and I guess one follows the other, have, have really got much of a track record in thinking about workforce planning. So, you know, asking somebody to fix it is 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 one thing, but are there any suggestions as to how it might be fixed from these organisations? I mean, I, I don't see that there's any way around it other than revising that 6,000 pharmacist target, which but I don't know if there's any sort of willingness within the NHS to do that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And I think that the thing is you can't restrict where people go to work, really, can you? I suppose, and it's perhaps unrealistic to expect, you know, GP practices and PCNs to, you know, to stop recruiting when this is clear clearly it's his government policy and they, they're getting behind it in quite a big way but it is it, definitely having a, a a knock on on effect on the on the sector on, on on community pharmacy and you know rob's right solutions well they're kind of hard to find aren't they um workforce planning is something that the, the sector has been notoriously poor at we seem to go from famine to glut to famine again in terms of um in terms of the number of pharmacists and any workforce changes just can't be magicked up overnight. You know, it take, probably takes about 10 years. So um, there's a short-term problem. And I take Arthur's point. There is there is an argument that it's largely about working conditions. But as you say, Arthur, the sheer numbers of, of, of pharmacists that are kind of switching over to primary care, 
you can't deny it's causing a, no one can deny it's causing a real problem for, for community pharmacists on the ground. So, yeah, um, answers on the postcard, I think, in terms of solutions. And let's go to Neil then to finish off. Neil, good week, bad week. What, what have you got for us? Well, I've gone for bad week, the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Um, now, they've pledged this week to stop all remaining financial investments that they have in companies that are uh, involved in fossil fuels um, by the end of next year. Now, that's not the reason I've given them a bad week. Um, it all sounds very positive. It sounds great, actually, when you look at what they've said. Um, you know, they, they're pledging to relinquish any interests in, in companies that extract fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, tar sands, all these kind of uh, horrible pollutants that are destroying this planet. And and they want to become an environmentally responsible organisation. And we'll, Brilliant. You know, it sounds great. Um, they've done they, they've uh, plenty of positive sound bites. They launched a, a climate declaration in, uh, I think it was in September, in which they called on the pharmaceutical industry, governments across the UK, other stakeholders, all to come together to address the, the, the climate emergency. And, um, and it, you know, they, they admit themselves, the RPS, that they, they needed to go further. Um, and this is how they've gone further. In their view, Claire Anderson, the RPS president, said this is a significant moment for the for the RPS, um, and it's always taken. This is what she said. You know, we, the RPS has always taken its responsibility for ethical investments extremely seriously, um, and so they've decided to divest from fossil fuels. Now, um, the reason I've given them bad week is because, as great as this all sounds, um, I think it's important that the RPS actually tells us which companies are, are they're involved in that are you know polluting our atmosphere you know i think a bit of transparency here wouldn't wouldn't hurt um in fact i think it's important to be transparent about this um i think if they if they name the companies that they they are withdrawing their financial interests from i think that would give us all a bit more assurance that they are really serious about uh, their commitment to tackling cl uh, the climate emergency um, why not name the companies? So, of course, we asked, I asked the RPS uh, to name these companies um, in the name of transparency, and I didn't get a response. They didn't respond, so they've effectively refused to tell us what the, the names of these companies. Um, now, I thought that was disappointing. Um, I think it took, I, I, my personal view um, is that it took gloss off of you know, a very um, you know, impressive bunch of sound bites that are coming from 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 uh, East Smithfield and and I I have I genuinely feel that uh, you know we'd all like a little bit of transparency not too much to ask but obviously it was too much to ask because for that reason I've given the bad week the Royal Pharmaceutical Society oh, Neil only you could say bad week for the society for saving the planet um yeah I mean like take your point like I, I I guess companies, the organisations generally have a kind of wide discretion on what, what to disclose about their investment approach, I suppose. And I guess most pharmacists would be happy to take them at their words. Um, but, you know, transparency is always good, nearly right? No harm to put it in the annual financial report, I guess. Um, Rob, where do you stand on this? They might not know. You know, I... Have they have they said we're not going to tell you, or have they just not been able to tell you? Because I, I think there's an interesting point here. I'm not sure, and I I would need to look at the um, society's financial latest financial statements 
to check this out properly. But if they, but they have, I think, a certain amount of money on deposit with an investment firm, I guess. And that investment firm will be tasked with um, making investments with the, the the cash on on a I guess a mainly a long term basis to secure the future of the professional body, and therefore um, they will be operating under a, a sort of framework. And I'm 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 wondering whether what's happened here is that the society is effectively going to tell its investment managers that um, they would like them to divest of anything that they do have in these these forms of investment. Um, you know, you'd think on the on the face of it, they could just say, sell, sell, sell. But I don't think it's as easy as that when you've got a few million um, invested with a with a, a, an investment management company. So I suspect that's what's happened here. I mean, it would have been helpful if they'd maybe explained that a little bit further. But they may not actually know exactly and how many uh, investments of this nature that there are in their overall envelope of money. So I think I think just for once, I'm going to say Neil's a bit harsh here, potentially, on, on this one. Neil, do you want to come back on that? Well, of course I, he does. I, I think, of course I do, absolutely. No, I think that, um, yeah, why not, why not say that, as you say? Why not explain that? Don't just ignore... The question um, for me that just ignoring the question, which is what they've done, um, just fuels my fuels suspicions. And I and I, I genuinely think I, I I'm not won over by the argument that, that Rob's put forward about they don't know. Surely they know, don't they? They must know who they're investing in. They must know. And if they don't know, that's a, well, that's another issue. I I, I I'm not won over by that. Um, I think they should know, and I think they should publish the names of the companies. Um, it's as simple as that. And don't, and as, and as you know, us journalists don't like to be ignored. We do like our questions answered. So at least, you know, come back with some kind of response. That's what's really uh, got my goat. <laughs> got your goat. Um, Arthur, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure this particular story uh, raises my hackles that much about sort of about the specific funds that they're divesting from but i definitely i definitely take neil's point that it can be frustrating because of the sort of status the rps has the kind of organization it is you sort of half expect that there might be uh mechanisms to compel them to give you information the way there are with government but of course there aren't it's 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 sort of this this funny sort of inscrutable uh status and they can sort of um tell you or not tell you whatever what 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 they want, um. So I mean, I, I definitely take 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 his point that you know that that it can be fr- frustrating to, to to grapple with that. Okay, um, that was an interesting little debate there. I wasn't expecting it to to go in that direction, and uh, well, we'll see if the the society um, provides the information that 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 Neil and maybe. To be fair, its members want. So that brings us to the end of this edition of the podcast. I should say that after we recorded the pod on Thursday, the Society did eventually send in a response to Neil's question, which reads, Our professional investment managers invest in a wide, diverse range of companies on our behalf. All of our investments are already made with a strong consideration of environmental issues, but may include some which extract fossil fuels, 
but are moving towards net zero. However, we will be working with our investment managers to divest from fossil fuel companies as soon as possible. So there we are. Um, my thanks then to Neil, Rob and Arthur. All the podcasts are available on the Pharmacy Magazine website on your usual podcast provider. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. We'll be back next week. But for now, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>